Yes, you know it's time to do it major Here's to the hustlers, the movers and shakers Get up on your grind, don't let the haters get ya I know that you got a vision, now it's time to deliver Yeah, yeah, giving you the tools, helping you to grow Level up, time to shine like you never did before Let them know, more than a podcast, it's a mindset You can do anything, you just gotta keep grinding Let's go, the entrepreneur adventure The Entrepreneur Adventure. You ready? Welcome back to today's episode of the Entrepreneur Adventure podcast. Today's guest is an expert in the aviation industry, and we're going to talk with him about multi-generational family businesses, the effect and benefit of having a business mentor, and the dangers of tying your identity to your perceived definition of success. So now, without any further ado, it's time to turn it over to our hosts, Josh Melton and Chad Brown. Welcome back, entrepreneurs. We've got a fast-flying episode for you today. We've got a guest going to teach us how to hit home runs. And he's not a baseball player, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking (laughs) business. We're going to talk about striking out, and we're going to talk about hitting home runs, successes and failures, massive growth. It's going to be awesome. He's founder of a company called VREF. I'm going to refer to him as Jay-Z. And VREF, for all of you out there that are non-plane enthusiasts, that is actually, I just learned, the landing speed of an airplane. And by Jay-Z, I mean Jason Zilderbrand. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thank you, guys. It's good to be here. It. Uh, I'm excited. This is like an episode for you and I, Josh. I mean, we get to talk about... Uh, massive business growth, successes, failures, airplanes. I mean, what really, what else could you ask for? I feel like Jason too. Jason's got a great voice for radio or I can tell this already, or I would, I can hear it as in like, I'm in the plane and this is the voice <laughs> of the captain speaking. Like, oh, okay. The voice of authority. You know, you know I, as long as you didn't say I have a great uh, face for radio. that I <laughs> Great face for radio. <laughs> Last podcast we did, I was like, I'm the best looking guy on this podcast. That's a podcast. Nobody he, can see us. He actually said that. I, mean, I think he meant it too. Um, you know, whatever works for you, Josh. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're into old athleisure guys, he's your man. <laughs> but anyway, man, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in business and how in the world you ended up in the world of uh, newsletters and platforms and software around airplanes. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of crazy. So my dad is a serial entrepreneur, um, yeah. which I think is what started me down uh, my path. Obviously, I emulated him since I was you know a toddler. And he used to take me around with him. My dad started off in the parking garage business, which I think is... Uh, really niche business. A lot of people don't even know that it exists unless they grew up in a big city. Um, so I grew it, up in South Georgia and I don't even think I saw a parking garage. Oh, yeah. college. So you so probably yeah, that, 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 that's foreign to me. <laughs> Chad didn't know that parking garages existed, much less the business of parking <laughs> They don't garages. even charge so, for them in Georgia. So Isn't that funny? And I think that growing up, if you weren't in a big city, you did not realize that people had to pay to park the car. I mean, it's just like the craziest thing. You want me to pay you and God forbid, it's like uh, in an apartment building or something, you can't find a spot anywhere. You'll pay big money for that, you know, for that garage spot. But yeah, that's that's what my dad did. Um, he inherited the business from my grandfather, um, which is another unique story. My grandfather owned a soap factory in downtown Chicago at the turn of the century and could not win um, in a competitive war with his main competitor who was undercutting him on price. He got fed up. He tore the building down and started parking cars. 
And so I was able to witness at a pretty young age, the highs and lows of being an entrepreneur. And I, um, I think that there's a lot of your listeners that can, that'll identify with this. And that is that you, you tend to become your company, right? If you're an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. your identity is your business. And so when you decide to sell it, it's like a part of you dies. And I did not know that. Um, but watching him go through that, he had a bunch of money, burned through it, uh, felt like he had no real calling in life anymore. And I guess that there's a big, you know, when you are working that kind of, those kind of hours as an entrepreneur and building something, when it gets taken away, even if it's by choice, it's very difficult. So business number two was salad dressing. Um, started a salad dressing company, convinced a restaurant owner, hey, I'm going to bottle it and put it on every shelf. And I don't know what made him think he could do it, but he did and sold it to Beatrice Foods right before uh, they filed bankruptcy in the early 80s. And that was his second pretty big home run. And so I got to watch now two businesses. It went from parking garages. Oh, yeah. Yeah. To salad yeah. dressing. Yes. Seamless transition. I feel like this is like, a uh, like, this is amazing already. My dad is just relentless. And I think that that's a huge trait that entrepreneurs need to have. They got to have thick skin. They need to handle rejection, right? But they just got to be persistent. And that's what my dad is. He's Mr. Persistent. He will not let it go. My dad decided he was going to go get a series seven and become an investment banker. I think he was really interested in business in general. And he obviously knew a lot about how to build companies. And I figured, you know, he thought he would be able to, you know, be a mentor, help people build their business, help them grow. And then if he can help from an investment standpoint, you know, and, and uh, and generate revenue for himself, why not, right? A great opportunity. And because he can't sit still, being involved in all these other businesses, I think is what really gave him, um, you know, the motivation to do it every day. So now I'm um, 14, 15 years old. I'm in high school. I'm a sophomore in high school. And uh, my dad and I were inseparable. He's like my best friend. It's, uh, I guess it's somewhat cultural, but, you know, I grew up in downtown Chicago and we just had a very close relationship. I think part of it was him not wanting us to get in trouble, like going to play in the the big city. And the other part was, you know, come see what I do for a living. And, um, and I think he wanted a mini me. So that's kind of what he wound up with. And so I, I was always in his shadow. I was always following him around. And so he picks me up from school and he's like, I got a business meeting. If you want to come great, if not, you know, I'll take you home. And I'm like, I'll go. I got nothing else to do. And it was uh, a meeting about this company called JSSI, which was what it became. It was a uh, power by the hour. So my dad's business collected an hourly rate for every hour an operator would fly. And in exchange for that, he would pay for all the maintenance that would come due on the aircraft. Sounds pretty easy, right? Um, until you have a major scheduled of, uh, unscheduled event and it's a couple million dollars to replace one of those engines. Hmm. First three years, they had zero claims. He got very lucky. And then um, I'm in college and basically my sophomore year of college, he called me up with his partner and said, hey, we need sales guys. And we'd love for you to come and take over a territory and we'll put you to work. My dad's business partner and his name was Rick. And Rick was like my, um, he wasn't a mentor back in those days, but he was like my coach. You know, he was like my life coach. During my freshman and sophomore year of college, I kept going to him with questions about business. You know, I wanted to, I had friends that wanted to do um, promotion of, you know, like small concerts. And I'm like, can I do this? Will you lend me the $5,000 to go rent the space? And he was always so willing and so supportive. And um, when they made that phone call, it was because of him that I said yes, because I, I knew that he would make sure, you know, that he would explain things and I would get the proper 
um, education. And, and I felt like it was a good move, you know, instead of college education, college can wait. Unbeknownst to me, they made that a prerequisite. So I come home, I had hair down on my shoulders, <laughs> right? So I got hair down on my shoulders. I've been snowboarding for 18 months, you know, pierced ear, the whole nine yards. I show up at the office Monday and they're like, well, you, you can't walk in the door looking like this. Go get your hair cut, right? And I couldn't go to my barber. I had to go to theirs because unbeknownst to me that they already paid the guy to shave my head, right? So I walk in, boom, that's gone. Earring comes out, go get the suit and tie. I'm like, this is just like such a culture shock, right? Um, so I went to go work for the family business, you know, and I wasn't working for the family. I was working for my dad's partner. And so about two or three weeks into it, he's like, you got to graduate. He's like, and you, you got to do better than just graduate. He's like, you're going to have to go to school. You're going to bust your butt. You're going to work, you know, twice as hard now. Cause you got a full-time job and a career. He's like, but if you don't graduate, he's like, I'll fire you in a spot. He's like, you have to have a degree. I really didn't have a choice. I recognized really quick that he was going to stay on top of me. And I think, um, I needed that. I needed the discipline. And this is when the relationship went from coach to mentor because he started teaching me about business and what I needed to know and the skill sets that were going to help me in the future. And he came up to me one day in the office and he said, look, he's like, you're your father's son. He's like, and there's nothing anybody can do to, you know, to kind of to stop that. He's like, but that means you're going to be in his shadow for the rest of your life. He's like, and if you want to make your own mark and you want to be your own man, you're going to have to get out from underneath the shadow. And he's like, you're not going to like what I'm doing. He's like, but I'm shipping you away. He's like, you're going to go move. He's like, you're moving away. He's like, you're not going to be around him anymore. You're not going to sit in his office. He's like, that's it. I was like, where am I going? And he goes, you got two choices. You can go to Columbus, Ohio, or you can go to Detroit. You know, I'm 23, 24 years old now at this point, And I'm selling a contract a service agreement couldn't be any more intangible, right? I had nothing. And if I didn't know the industry and I didn't know the lingo and I wasn't a pilot and I didn't know how to fly, what, what the hell am I going to say to these people? It's like, I know nothing about your airplane. I can't tell you what's going to happen when and if it breaks, but if you sign this piece of paper, I can promise you we're going to be there when you need us, right? I mean, I was getting the door slammed on me so many times a day. It was unbelievable. I was like, Mr. Rejection. But it was not, it wasn't me. It was the fact that I didn't know anything, you know, and I didn't recognize I didn't know anything. And I think by the time I recognized that I did know something, 10 years had gone by. Like, I think it really did take me about a decade until I felt comfortable having a conversation with somebody like a chief pilot about their airplane that I still had never flown. You were just telling us that you were bad luck. Yes. And, and then my internet cut out. <laughs> Go figure, right? it's so, coming back man Get i'm back i'm back so yeah I, you know and, and i guess just as a side note it's so easy this is the downside to being um in business or, or being a sales guy it's just so easy to go down that rabbit hole of self-pity and yeah. right it's so hard to break it and you don't realize the um you know kind of the body language and, and if you're doing a lot and, of voice right that's that's a question i got for you there i wanted to ask is you know, you talked about, you know, all of a sudden 10 years had gone by and you were becoming successful in that. Do you think it was more the experience or the confidence behind the experience? I think they go hand in hand. I think when you stick to something, even if it's painful, eventually it, you get good at it. I mean, I, anything that you want to excel in takes practice, right? And I always tell 
athletes, it's so easy to, to have a conversation with athletes because they get it, right? They just do the same yeah. thing over and over again until it's muscle memory and then it's perfection, right? Well, I mean, for math or for business skills, it's the same thing. I mean, it, there is no difference. Yeah. If you want to sell somebody something, go do it 10,000 times. And I promise you, you'll, you'll knock it out of the park. But people throw in the towel after the fifth try. Yeah, which right. comes down to that everything, no matter what it is, they say 10,000 hours. I mean, whether it's yeah, you're right. or, or painting or business or whatever it is you want to be good at, unless you're willing to put in 10,000 hours, which is probably at least four or five years. It's, it's yeah, yeah I, I think you're right. I think it's about five years, right? I mean, that's why we don't have renaissance, true renaissance men anymore because nobody has the ability to do it. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got to stick to your career path. I think that it's so dangerous to throw in the towel prematurely. I, I know it's easy to be an armchair quarterback and tell people, oh, you don't want to do that. But I mean, there has to be a real good reason to, for me to quit and walk away from something. If nothing else, it's just the challenge. I'm just going to keep going until there's really nothing left, you know, to win at that point. Maybe just my, uh, um, I don't know. Eh, Which at that, at that time, what made you stick the five or 10 years needed? Was it just straight grit or was you, was it money? Were you getting paid? Well, what it was what so, it yeah, I mean, I would never BS you guys. I mean, yeah, money is a great motivator. Right. And I have found over the years that it's difficult to motivate people who aren't motivated by money. Right. It's mm -hmm. so easy for me to deal with people that are, you know, driven by financial gain because I know exactly what it is that they need, but I don't do real well with people that just, you know, I call them the do-gooders and it's not because I'm belittling them by any stretch. I just don't understand how you can put that kind of time and energy into something without any reward. Right. And I've just never been cut from that cloth. I'm not going to do something unless it's just like really gratifying and I, business to me was right. So, I mean, I just, you got to remember too. I mean, I'm 20 something years old. My dad is in his, late forties. Right. So we're not that far apart in age. And I have a younger brother who wants nothing to do with the industry. So I'm going around going, well, this is my company. Like I really treated it like my own and I protected my father like it was mine. I mean, you asked a really interesting question. And I mean, I, I really did believe that at some point the reins were going to be handed off to me. I didn't know when, but it, you know, that's why I was doing it. I was very passionate because I felt that there was a long-term reward. I'm like, you know, my dad's going to retire at the age of 65. I had it all worked out, right? He's going to put in 20 years. By then I'll be able to run the company. He'll go to Florida. I'll keep it. My kids will either want it or they won't. And if they don't want it, you know, then we'll, we'll sell it. And if they do want it, great. The third generation can take over. Um, so, so you took ownership as an employee and at a young age of not only your role, but the business in general. And I think that is a huge message. I actually had a conversation with my team, one of my companies um, yesterday morning about this is I said, Hey, the reason I'm trying to get you to own and manage things is I don't want to, I'm not going to be here doing this in 10 years mm -hmm. and somebody's got to do it. So whether it's a family business or it's a business you're an employee in or a manager in, I think that's the, the result is the business has got to change and adapt and go to somebody to manage or shut down. And so that, that's huge that that age you felt that responsibility and kind of took that role. Yeah. And had long-term vision, delayed gratification. Yeah, I'm not absolutely. good at this right now. I keep trying. It's hard. It's not working out the way I want it to, but I see a future for myself. I'll just get through this time. There's a reward out there for you somewhere. 
that you know you're going to get at some point or believe you're going to get at some point. Yeah. I mean, I think when you show an initiative as a young kid, there's either going to be the camp that's jealous and hates you and despises you for it. And then there's the camp that's going to look at you and say, you know what, this is the future. This is somebody that knows where this company is going or has the, you know, the initiative and the wherewithal to figure it out. And so, yeah, you're going to have your fans and your enemies. And I think in the corporate environment, it's so competitive that tends to be, you know, what you get wrapped up with. And that's why it wasn't cut out for me. I couldn't wait to get out of that kind of environment, but um, I think stumbling around and trying to sell and not succeeding is what makes you a great salesman. Because once you've heard, right. Once you've been rejected so many times, it's like, I, it's amazing. I, you know, once I accepted rejection and I started to close people, everything else in my life, you know, it's funny. I went from the bad news bear, you know, to, I, it was like, I was spotting dimes like George Costanza across the room. I mean, it was <laughs> unbelievable how much changes when you get confidence, you know, truth is, I mean, you need to, whatever's going to motivate you for success is I think is what you need to do. You got to grab the bull by the horns. And for me, it was doing better than I did the year before. And I kept setting goals and I kept hitting them. And um, that leads to a lot of further confidence. And I think, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. So I'm in this position now where I've got all these responsibilities. I've got all these people bombarding me, you know, making me think that they're their, my friend. And at the same time, I'm doing pretty good. I went from not being able to close anybody to basically closing every flight department in Detroit. Um, I was working with all the car manufacturers and all their vendors, and I was having a blast. A uh, good group of people big fraternity. And what wound up happening is that because they trusted me, they started asking me for things outside of what I was doing. And this is like the side hustle 101. So they would come to me and say, Hey, you know, can you introduce me to somebody at, uh, at Raytheon? I want to buy an airplane. I don't know who I should call. Oh, you sold the airplane. We got to send you, you know, your commission check. I'm like, I made an introduction. They're like, yeah, that's, that qualifies as the, uh, you can imagine going from making, you know, a good living. I, I had a, I was making probably um, mid nineties, you know, 175, 200,000 a year. I was doing well. It was a good salary. Yeah. Right. And then that Christmas, so this is Christmas of 03. I get this phone call from one of the manufacturers. Hey, we owe you on a couple aircraft deals. And I had no idea what to expect. So <laughs> I give them, I give them my routing number, my, uh, my account number. And if you remember back in those days, like, you know, it wasn't instantaneous. It took five days for it to clear. Right. My bank calls me when this money hit and they're like, we just want to make sure you're aware, you know, a hundred thousand dollars hit your account. And I'm oh like a hundred thousand. I'm like, you got, there's gotta be a mistake. There's no way. You know? So I call the guy up. I'm like, Hey, like a hundred grand showed up in my account. Where do you want me to send it back? He's like, send it back. He's like, go have a great Christmas. I'm like a great Christmas, huh? I'm like, you don't, don't do that to me because I mean, I never had that kind of working capital before. This was my first introduction to like working capital. And it's funny. I tell people this all the time. When you make a lot of money at a young age, you spend every pint, every dime, right? (laughs) You're living beyond your means. So it, it didn't matter how much money I was making. I had nothing. You know, I I had absolutely nothing. I had a beautiful car. I probably had two nice cars. I had a lot of nice clothes, a lot of nice shoes. This did, you know, the typical young guy, garbage, beautiful TV. First guy in my neighborhood with, with the dish. First guy with a high definition television. Right. Um, I mean, I, I was rolling in it. So I, I, I remember the TiVo came out. And I bought the lifetime subscription, not thinking that there was ever going to be a replacement for TiVo. Right? <laughs> Some TiVo salesman to this day is still laughing because I wrote him a check for 800 bucks in like 1998 for TiVo. 
lifetime service. So yeah, I mean, you know, you make stupid decisions, easy come, easy go, right? I never right. thought my life was going to change. Everything was, you know, and then here I am, I'm faced with a major life decision. You know, what do I do? Because the money was such a huge um, incentive. And at the same time, you know, our business was really going through a lot of growth spurts. So, you know, the insurance company was a mom pa business. There was about 12 people working there. And year over year, we were adding, you know, to the staff and it was getting pretty big. It was getting to the point where we needed a new space. Um, my dad brought in a, a full-time CFO. Rick got sick. I'm going to fast forward now a little bit for another year. And so we, we took his stock in the company and we left. We hired staff to basically run the insurance company while we were looking for a buyer. And that took four years to sell. So it was not an easy process. And in that four years, there's a lot of loss of control and a lot of things going on. And so my dad was absolutely bifurcated between starting a new business with me and trying to manage a business that he was trying to sell for a lot of money. And uh, so he basically just gave me control over the aircraft dealership and had very little day-to-day -day involvement, right? So I'm 30 years old. I've got a, a very large credit facility. Um, buying and selling airplanes and doing really well at it. It was um, it was like a natural fit. <clears throat> and I got a phone call from a client. And he said, hey, do you want to buy an aircraft that we're going to be taking delivery of? And um, we don't want it. And I said, sure, I'll take a look at it. And it was a really desirable airplane. It was a midsize corporate jet. It had a lot of, um, it was in its early stages of coming out and it had a lot of, a lot of water cooler talk. It was very popular amongst people that were looking to buy an airplane. I figured I had nothing to lose. You know, I was going to buy it for a little bit of a discount because they needed to liquidate it. I had one payment left. It had already been built. So when you go and buy a business jet, a big business jet, there is a process to how it gets built. And it's completely different than a car. It's closer to a construction project than like a big skyscraper. Because the one thing these manufacturers don't do is spend their money to build your airplane. They spend your money to build their your airplane, Ooh, right? You get a prepay. Oh, yeah. So you got a payment schedule, right? So you usually put 10 or 15% down. And then every six months, you're going to make another payment. And in the mid-2000s, the backlog was about six to eight years, right? So if you bought your, your plane, you would get it almost a decade later. That's how wow, right? Because they're not making more than 30 or 40 a year. And the demand was through the roof. You had every Russian it, between, remember the BRIC countries, the emerging markets, they were, they put such a huge demand on these airplanes that there was nothing left for the United States. The United States absorbed 75% of business jets. The, the United States is the tail that wags the dog. There are so few planes outside the United States, it's almost not even worth paying attention to it. And all of a sudden, you had all these guys with mega bucks trying to buy an airplane. And there weren't any. Well, we got to get in line. We got to wait. So here I come. Hey, I got new airplanes and you don't have to wait seven years because I had bought them in bulk and sat on them. And I was the one doing the outfitting. I'm like, you want gray seats? You want tan seats? What paint do you want? And they're like, come on. I'm like, I'm serious. And I was personally guaranteeing the deal because in those days, um, Buyers were very reluctant to buy, you know, from somebody like me who then was, con you know, contracted and had an obligation with the factory and the factory did not have great credit. So everything was rolling downhill basically to me. So I had to guarantee that this was going to close. And that's oh, pretty wow. scary being a 30 something year old kid. Right. So I was doing it. I mean, I, you know, I was carrying three cell phones. I was doing two or three deals a month. 
Um, I was buying anywhere from 15 to 20 positions at a time. I had a $380 million credit facility that, you know, I'd started with one airplane. So I grew it from 15 million with my dad's cash to 380 million of banks money. Uh, the bank was one of the greatest partners I ever had. I mean, they never questioned anything and business was just going gangbusters. And this was 2004 through 2008. So there was a lot of magical things happening in those days. You had a lot of what we see today, you know, um, it's a very similar makeup. You had, you know, high price for oil. You had all these emerging markets flush with cash. You had banks that were willing to do 100% financing, asset collateralized lending, which is just like the craziest concept under the sun. I could never get my arms around. So I basically, you're just going to give it to me on my, you know, my good looks. Yeah. Okay. I'll sign. Right. You're like, I'm, you're like, I can't lose. This is uh, amazing. Like, Thank God I'm me. handsome. Yeah. Explain to me how you lose, right? You want to go buy a boat and it's a hundred million dollars. Oh, don't worry about it. The boat's going to be worth 101 million tomorrow. Right. How yeah. many times did you yep. hear that? I mean, so that's what was going on in our world too. These planes were appreciating aircraft appreciated until 2008. It's insane to even think that I'm saying it, but they went up in value every day. I had aircraft that would appreciate a million a month. And that was wow. real money. You know, the longer I sat on it, the more money I would make. I was actually being cut off from my lender to a point where they said, you can't close any more deals. Like we can't explain where all this cash is coming from. You're, you're selling them too fast. Slow it down. <laughs> like, okay. You know, and I was selling aircraft before the first uh, interest payment was due. So you can imagine as a lender, you know, if they're not making- They're interest, not making any money. They're not making any money. They're like, what the hell is going on? So the market was just on fire. It wasn't us. I mean, it was just what was going on. It was a crazy time to be in business aviation. And like all good things, you know, eventually they come to an end. Um, I went from the highest to highs. I mean, I think in 2007, uh, I personally made almost $40 million. I mean, it was just absolute mind boggling. I went from, you know, not too far back, making a couple hundred grand a year. And now all of a sudden I own my own business yet, you know, pay cash for a house, two golf clubs, whatever the hell I wanted, I bought, never thought twice about it and didn't think it was ever going to end. And, you know, shame on me and shame on the people around me for not being a little bit more conservative. But, you know, in those days, you're flying high, you're in, a, in an industry that supports that type of activity. And, and, and all, honestly, glamour sales, what you're doing at that point. The, the yeah, I mean, you can imagine, right? You show up in your own business jet, the rich guy at the other end now respects you. Now you're an equal, like there's no selling. It's like, all right, I'll take it. Like, okay, that, that works for me. <laughs> like, I'm going to go home. Why did I even bother coming here? Right. But it was just a fact I showed up, but you know, it, it was weird. And I think that's, it was a big life lesson because I didn't respect it, you know, and I'll never forget the lack of respect I had for the money I was making. I didn't respect one dime of it. It meant nothing. It was coming too quick. It was too easy. Um, I don't even think I really felt like I had earned it especially in those days. I mean, I was just too young really to, to grasp it. And so when 08 happened and the market, you know, the great recession hit, yeah, I basically lost 50 cents on the dollar overnight. The Russian stock market closed for five days. Um, I was getting death threats from people that had literally bought airplanes from me the week before. What do we got to do to get on, you know, out from underneath this? And then I'm dealing with the financial institutions and the manufacturers who, you're looking to me to make good on all those loans, right? They don't care what the equipment's worth. I bought it, I own it. And then the manufacturers, I mean, 
there was one manufacturer, I controlled 25% of their inventory. I mean, that's not a good situation, right? So it's like, you know, I didn't have the skill set to work things out in my head, much less with them. But that is what I did for the next five years. It was a big workout. I managed to get out from underneath every single contract. Um, friendly. Everybody's still friends today. Um, yeah. It is amazing. But, you know, I got to tell you, I, I shouldn't take as much credit as it probably seems like I am. It, I had company. There were a couple other groups that had just as much on the books as we did. We controlled an awful lot of a very small market. We weren't going anywhere, you know, that meaning I wasn't going to just fold up shop and go open up a burger joint. Like this is what I did for a living. And yeah, they were dark days, but I think, um, did you, did you at that time think it was over? Like, uh, this is done or were you like, we'll come out of this if we can figure out how to get through it. So my dad was the optimist and he's still, he's very optimistic about everything. He's always glasses half full and I just am not, I can't, I don't know what it is about my makeup, but I'm just not cut from that cloth. And so when this was going on, I was like, you know, I used to tell people the only way you can really feel what it's like to be in my shoes is if you were in the horse and carriage business and a guy by the name of Henry Ford invented what we know as a, as a car, <laughs> right? Cause that's exactly what it was like. I had stuff that nobody wanted. And I mean, I couldn't liquidate it because there wasn't anybody to liquidate it to. The people that I was trying to sell the stuff to were trying to liquidate stuff. I mean, I remember getting phone calls from people that were so wealthy. I mean, we're talking like big money, old family money, concerned that they were going to be like having to go get jobs because what was going on with, with the markets. It was crazy what was going on. We didn't understand um, I don't think I had any clue as to how to manage the process. Right. And so I really leaned on my dad and my mentors to guide me through it. And here, my dad is very, you know, happy go lucky. And my mentors were like, you know, I, I don't really know what to do because I've never been in this situation before, but if you want to bounce things off of us, you know, we're happy to, to be there. And I think it was just the support, you know, I couldn't go to my friends. I couldn't go to my immediate family. And I think that's a real, problematic thing for somebody who's an entrepreneur, because who can you go to for honest, you know, trustworthy advice, because everyone's so close to it. My, my, my first marriage was unraveling. Um, surprise, surprise, right? I mean, you know, when you can't, um, you can't meet those expectations financially anymore, right? And then I'm so, you know, down in the dumps all the time, nobody wanted to be around me. So I was losing a lot of close relationships, because my friends didn't understand and nor would I ever put it in their face and say, Hey, you know, I just lost $200 million. Like I'm having a bad day at the office. <laughs> I, you know, they don't care. I mean, and they couldn't relate to it. Even if they did, I had one really close friend who's like, you know, wow, things must be going really well. I mean, like the house, the plane, the cars, like, aren't you a little worried? And I'm like, well, you know, when you make a lot of money, you spend a lot of money. And he's like, but you're not putting any of it away. And I'm like, I don't know how much I need to put away. I mean, like, you know, I'll just sell another airplane next month. Well, that was the kiss of death statement. Right. And I think that that's yep. like the big lesson that I learned, you know, the, no matter how good things are, there's trouble at your doorstep, right? You're just one bad phone call away from having to readjust everything. So, you know, the new Jason would give the old Jason the following advice, live below your means, right? Make sure that you're only spending about 20% of what you're bringing in and save it. You don't know when the rainy day is coming and make sure you don't get involved in businesses that you have never been involved in. And I think with those, you know, those two pieces of advice, I would have never had half the problems that I had, but you know, 
when we first started talking, it's like, you know, you got to stick to what you know. And the reason why I'm so adamant about that is because I have had the unfortunate experience of going into businesses I knew nothing about. And when you get into problems and you need to figure out how to solve them, you don't know what to do. Um, perfect example. You know, it's 2013. I got nothing going on. A lot of free time. Golf really wasn't something that I could afford to do anymore. So now, you know, my, my two or three days a week on the golf course, I'm just, you know, totally depressed. And a buddy of mine's like, hey, why don't we open up a bar and a restaurant? I'm like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Look, give me something to do, right? <laughs> yeah. Note to self, never do that again. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would rather burn $200,000 in a trash can than go through that experience <laughs> ever again, right? I mean, what the hell did I know about a bar? Much less a restaurant. And I'm supposed to be the silent third party with the money. Needless to say, the money is not what it used to be. And I'm actually relying on this business for a paycheck. It was just so stupid. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I think um, I can laugh about it now because the truth is it's like a master's degree. You know, when you make mistake, mistakes like that and you survive, and by the way, for the listeners out there that are going through something horrible right now, you will survive. I can promise you tomorrow is another day. Everything happens for a reason. And I know it sounds so cliche, but it really is true. At my lowest lows, at the lowest point in my life is when this opportunity that I have now was presented to me. And I don't think, I actually, I know I would not have taken it had certain things not have occurred in the order that they did. And I, I don't know, I just, I think people are too hard on themselves, you know, and you're going to fail. And the failures, believe it or not, that's what makes you successful. It's being able to recover and then learning something from it and knowing that you screwed up. You got to recognize it. It's like the stages of, uh, of, of, you know, of addiction, right? I mean, there's no difference. Yeah. I mean, you really got to recognize the fact that you got a problem before you can solve it and get rid of it and put it behind you. And, and that's a big problem. I think for entrepreneurs, we got great memory. We, uh, we hate dealing with, you know, confrontational issues. We all want to just do our thing every day and be left alone. And then we're faced with these big challenges and how do we get through them? Right. And for most entrepreneurs, they're not leaning on external resources. They're leaning on themselves because they don't, you know, people always ask me, you know, what's your perfect employee? I'm like, I, I go hire myself. But unfortunately, a guy like me is going to go run his own business. I'm not going to be able to hire somebody like me. And so that's always my challenge, you know, is getting yep. people that I can bring in that I can let go and not have to micromanage. And I don't know, I probably have digressed somewhat. But I mean, you know, it's just, uh, it's interesting when you go through such a massive loss, how your emotional self starts to carry, you know, and, and present you in a different way that you don't even realize it. So I said earlier, you know, body language, it's really hard not to let people know in a sales environment that you're miserable and depressed and, and a failure. And if you feel that you're going to show it. And it's the simple little body gestures that we do. And so, yeah, I think failure uh, without, without really being persistent and growing right and wanting change failure for some people will just be the end of it. And that'll be the end of their entrepreneur spirit. And they go get a job and that's that. And they live with the regret the rest of their life. And I'm sure there's a bunch of people listening that wish they didn't do certain things. And, but it's not too late. I mean, I can tell you, you know, I took VREF on three and a half years ago, thinking that I wasn't going to get a second chance. Um, I thought that for the most part, you know, my opportunities were behind me. Um, nobody was going to give a 40 something, an opportunity to run a business when they couldn't do it for themselves. So track record is important. But then, you know, 
there's skill sets you have, right? And I think that you got to really lean on those skill sets if you want a future. And unbeknownst to me, what I had been doing all along was really valuing airplanes. And I was an accredited appraiser. And this is how things kind of come full circle. So, you know, I'm brokering airplanes every day for very wealthy people. And when, you know, when the, the recession hit, a lot of those people started calling me, what's this thing going to be worth? And so I was spending more time doing that. And I said, you know, wouldn't this be great if I could just do this every day, just tell people what it's worth. And a friend of mine's like, you know, you could be an appraiser and do this full time. And I'm like, yeah, I'll make no money. And he's like, you probably won't make any money. He's like, but you can do it full time. So I started appraising aircraft and I was making a few bucks here or there. And I was doing a couple of appraisals a month. Um, and then a, a good friend of my father's approached me. And this is where I think networking is so important and just keeping your eyes open. You just don't know when opportunities are going to present themselves. So a good friend of my dad's who has happens to own a very uh, well-off appraisal company is in his seventies and he's got a daughter who wants nothing to do with the business, right? All of a sudden he's like, I need someone to take this thing over. He's like, and I don't trust anybody. And you're local, you live near me. You know, I, I know your dad forever. I've known you since you were a kid. Will you please come and do this with me? It wasn't like giving me an option. It reminded me of what had happened with Jesse, with the insurance company. I'm like, why is this guy so like gung-ho on getting me involved? Like, what is it that I'm going to be able to do? And I was so, um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I was just so down in the dumps, right? That I had a real hard time seeing the forest through the trees. And begrudgingly, I said, yes, I didn't want it, but I had nothing else to do. I was so sick of buying and selling airplanes and working for people that I detested. And just the art of the deal wasn't fun anymore. It was really hard for me to handle rejection, not knowing where I was going to pay my bills. I just wanted something consistent, you know, and I was really persistent about trying to find something that would be consistent in terms of revenue and allowing me to, to finally flourish and not be a commission sales guy. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I had kids and I had obligations and I just was kind of done with it. And so I said yes to Ken and within... I don't know, a couple of days of me saying, yes, they start calling me, Hey, you know, there's this opportunity. What do you think? And basically what it was, was we had the ability to, to purchase VRA from its predecessors. And I was like, if we can really do this, I'm, I'm all in, I'm like, I'm all in with everything because I knew, you know, given the opportunity to buy a well-known brand and then a company that had been underutilized and, and not really, um, it wasn't operating anywhere near what it's, capacity was that I had an opportunity to grow it. And that's what I did. I combined Ken's appraisal company with, um, with VREF. VREF is a software as a service company. So we are one of two authorized blue books for aviation. So we are like Kelly's and we have about 700,000 subscribers. When I took over the business, we had uh, about 500,000. We were doing under a million a year, uh, no staff, um, my first year, we doubled revenue and uh, we have now gone on and tripled it. Our growth rate's about 16% month over month, which is fantastic. Wow, that's impressive. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's going great. And I was finally able to apply all my skill sets. So with no risk, I, you don't have the same risk. Of the I have no risk. You know, it's contracts so, and well, yeah. the beauty of the service industry. Yeah. So, and that this is like the coolest thing ever, right? So if you're going to be an entrepreneur, the best businesses are the ones that solve problems, right? With no competitors. And that's what I got here. I got a service business that solves a big problem. What's an asset worth? And I don't have any competitors. And the likelihood of someone coming into our industry and doing this is slim because where are they going to get 25 or 30 years of the historical data to compete with us, right? It would be a waste of their time to try. So yeah. 
my goal now is not to screw it up. My goal is not to squeeze, <laughs> not to squeeze the, the baby chick so hard that I crush it. Right. But, and at the same time, I'm very protective over it because I know exactly what I've got. So it's a very, you know, for the first time ever, I don't own an airplane. I have no vested interest in any personal property. Um, I don't, and we, we're, we don't, I mean, it's a ground rule here. Nobody's allowed to own anything. We're hundred percent transparent, unbiased and ethical to a fault. And I think that's why it works so well. You know, awesome. the, the lenders trust us. They give us the data. We play a really important role. Um, for those that don't know, you do need an appraisal to borrow money from a bank with personal property. And whether it's real estate or personal property, like an aircraft is, lenders refuse to loan anymore based on what happened in 08, unless an appraiser is willing to provide them a written report as to what the asset's worth. So- And, and you, you all have figured out how to turn this, what used to be manual service into a software computerized format, which I assume takes a lot of the labor out of the process. So I inherited a software program with the business, but it was built 16, 17 years ago on an old Microsoft frame set. And so that was really why I was hired. I was hired to rebuild the software. Okay. There was nobody that they could find that knew how to do software development and knew the product and the industry, right? So it took 18 months. It took a lot of money. Um, it took about 16 hours every day. We, we rolled it out about a year ago. We just came out of beta testing. Um, I got to tell you, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I, I really don't have any complaints. You know, that things have gone so great the last couple of years. And I feel like I finally am able to say that I deserved it after putting in, you know, so much sweat equity and really being just... Uh, I don't want to say do the right thing, but for the first time in my life, I was really presented with a second chance without any ties and didn't have a family member giving me an opportunity. I didn't have, you know, uh, a bunch of crazy, um, you know, overhead It's such a noose around your neck. Right. So this is like, I was able to start over again. Right. So I live below, I do all the things that you're supposed to do. I live below my means. <laughs> I don't have any credit cards with debt on them. Um, if I'm going to buy something, I pay cash for it, right? All the things I was supposed to do 20 years ago that I didn't do, that I took for granted, now I'm doing them. And I'm putting every every paycheck I get, I put money away in a savings account. It's like it's like being you know born again almost. I know it sounds crazy, but that's kind of how I feel. It's like yeah, a huge relief, you know. And I don't have to take things on that I know are going to cause pressure or cause stress. And I don't. Here's something you'll appreciate. I don't have to be water skiing behind a 400 foot yacht. I'm comfortable, right? I don't need a, a Learjet to feel good about myself. I don't need a, a Porsche to feel good about myself. So, and, and do you think that's because you put in the work and became your own success story through earning it as opposed to just buying it or showing it? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it is. And you probably have a psychology degree because at the end of the day, <laughs> that is the, the absolute, that's it. There is nothing. I mean, when you earn it, when it's given to you, it means nothing. And I don't, there, you, everybody knows someone that inherited money. They, mm -hmm. they walk different. They talk different. There's a different way they carry themselves. It's because they don't work for it. Easy come, easy go, right? I can always tell who the guy is that didn't work for a living because he's the first one to, to take his credit card out and pick up the tab. Like the guy who's killing himself, he won't even be in that position where he's going to be asked for a credit card. That's the difference. So yeah, I earned it this time around. 
And I'm very protective over my capital. I'm not lending it to a friend. I'm not putting it in a bar. I'm not, you know, certainly not going to go blow it on a, on a, a vacation, you know, just because I have to fly privately because whoever's on the other side is going to see me get off of a Southwest airplane. I mean, I, I've grown up a little bit, you know, and I think that that's a big, <laughs> a big part of it, you know? I mean, look, I have friends that never grew up. They'd still do the same stuff they did 30 years ago. And then they wonder why I don't want to hang out with them. But, you know, there's a time and place, you know, and, the other thing too is that I finally respected the fact that I do work so hard that I'm entitled to play. I'm entitled to have yeah. a life, right? I'm entitled to enjoy a Sunday with my family and I'm not going to feel bad about it. Whereas yeah. when you when it comes so quick, I don't know, I always felt like that urge to work. You know, like I said, I had three phones. The Blackberry was the worst invention in the world because anybody that owned a Blackberry didn't need to see the keyboard to be typing on it. And there were days when, you know, I'd be at dinner and, you know, under the table and I'd be texting people and i just needed a deal i just needed someone please crack rock right we used to call it the black uh, the, the crack rock you know someone had to respond to me and i don't know those days are i'm glad it's behind me i'm glad that um never thought i would say this but i'm glad i had you know the pitfalls that i did when i had them i can't imagine what it would be like to go through that you know at 50 or 60 or 70 no you don't have time on your side for a second chance i was lucky I was lucky yeah. that, you know, it happened when it did. And, and also too, I guess that you had built such a reputation and skill in an industry. So an opportunity did show up and you didn't even go find the opportunity. It came calling to you and, and goes back to that Testament of, uh, you know, staying with something, you know, and putting in those hours. I, I think that's, that's where that came in to benefit you multiple times. It, it, it helped you. Uh, go to a lifestyle of tens of millions of dollars and also helped you bounce back from, from a recession in an economy that nobody expected to, to get back in the game. Yeah. I mean, I never really thought about um, the fact that somebody would want me to, you know, to help them or would see something, you know, in me that would allow, you know, business like the one I'm involved in today to, to grow. But I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. I don't know. I, you know, I, I get asked to talk a lot and I do a lot of seminars and I do a lot of teaching stuff today. And it's like, I can't believe I've been doing this almost 30 years. Like, I don't know where the time went. Right. But it's that time that allowed me to be able to, to engage with, with you guys, for example, because, you know, yeah. 20 years ago, I would have never been able to have this kind of a conversation. You just, you just either too close to it or you don't recognize it. I don't know. It, look, the, the most successful stories out there are usually built off the biggest failures. I mean, mm -hmm. Half your listeners don't realize that Coca-Cola almost went out of business and they should go and read that story because it's one of the best stories in the world. When you take the greatest thing in the world and you destroy it, right? You self-sabotage it. Every entrepreneur gets into a position where they self-sabotage, you know, and I think when you can uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, no matter how big the failure is and walk into that room knowing everybody knows, right? I mean... And that is the truth. I'm in a very small industry and there isn't one person. It's like I go, I went to a very small school growing up with 50 kids and I graduated from high school with the same 50 kids I started junior kindergarten with. Right. And there's not one kid that didn't see a pick your nose or piss in your pants or right. And they remember that. And it's so hard. I'm going to sit here and we all laugh about it. But I mean, how do you ask a girl out that you knew when she was seven and remember her throwing up all over the swing set. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I just thought it was a little weird, too ancestral. But my industry is just like that. It's a fraternity. And so when you walk into that 
crowded room, everybody knows like that's the guy that blew $300 million, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yep, (laughs) it happened. There's no doubt, you know? So what is now as you're scaling this business and you're seeing uh, the, the fruits of your hard work and, and the successes here, what's motivating you? What's driving now to, to pursue success on the level you are through VREF? So I had a unique situation and that is I, I, I've got three kids, uh, one from my first marriage who unfortunately doesn't live with me, but I do have two little ones that, that do and second marriage. And yeah, I got a second crack at everything, right? Second marriage, second wife. Um, it's kind of a miracle that it even happened. I, the, the woman that, that said yes and, uh, and is my wife was, I don't know what the hell she was thinking, right? I had all the baggage in the world, but she still saw something and, and we built a family together. And so that's why I do it. I, the reason why I kill myself today and work so hard is because I got two little ones that I want to be able to give a legacy to. I really think family businesses are the coolest thing in the world. Um, you've got built-in staff. You know you can trust them, right? There's nothing better than a family. And I love watching my clients that are family-run businesses. I just sit back and I just absorb. And it's so cool because everything doesn't matter what it is, service, manufacturing, they're all the same. You got the patriarch, matriarch, you know, kids, the the personalities between them, everybody kind of fighting for or jockeying for a position. But I know that at some point I'm not going to do what my dad did and work. You know, my dad still works every day full time. He's crazy. I mean, he's mid seventies and he won't hang it up. I don't want that. I know exactly what I want. I want to be, you know, 65 to 68 and I want to be able to hang them up. I want to walk away and I don't want to necessarily sell it. And so the ideal situation is for me to transfer it, you know, to my children. And I'm praying that they see, you know, I spend a lot of time in the house with them. Uh, even though I have an office, I do choose to work out of the house so that I can be around them more. And I think it's through osmosis that they're picking this stuff up already. I mean, especially in my son, he, he comes and mimics me, sets up his own little desk. I give him a, a, a laptop that doesn't work and he sits and types next to me. And I just, uh-huh. I mean, it's the coolest thing ever. So that's why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I want them to have it. And, uh, and I want them to have the ability to say, no, I don't want it. And hopefully I'll be in a position, you know, where they can go do their own thing if that's what they want to do. And, and then I would sell the business, but that's really, you know, it's amazing to see those faces. And, uh, that's why I I do what I do. You know, that's awesome. And and as you look back on things and look back on your journey and, and your entrepreneurial, uh, adventures, would you change it at this point? Is there any part of that story that you're like, man, I, I wish I hadn't went through that, or I, I wish things would have been different here, or is it all part of what got you to where you're at today? You know, I think I'm very accepting now of kind of my story and how it worked out. I mean, yeah, there's always things that you would have liked to have zigged instead of zagged, or, you know, what happens if I didn't do this? And, yeah, I always wonder what life would have been like if I would have stayed in, in Colorado. I'm sure I would still be there today. I, I There's a very good chance that had I not left when I did, I would still be there today. And God only knows what my life would have been like, right? Completely different, I'm sure. Um, yeah, there's also, uh, you know, what if I hadn't said yes and didn't go work for the family business? What would I have wound up doing? But, you know, I don't know. I, I'm. You can't live with this is the, the th- so I do a lot of litigation consulting today, right? So I spent a lot of time helping clients in court and I do a lot of expert witness work. And, and the one thing that 
that side of um, work does is it forces you to live in the past, right? Because you've got a case and it happened a while ago and now you've got to figure out all the evidence and you got to go through the painful process of reliving it. And because I do so much of that work, I really try and stay in the present. It's really good for me to, to, you know, to stay focused on what's happening today and look out into the future. I find that I get very depressed when I have to reflect. And it's because I don't tend to reflect on the positives. I reflect on all the things that you just brought up. Like, what if I would have done this? Or what if I would have done that? And I think, you know, most of my regrets really aren't business or um, anything to do financially. Most of my regrets, unfortunately, one of the side effects of being successful and young is that you don't get a chance to have a lot of close friends. And so that is the one thing I regret. I regret that there were people that I really had great relationships with that I haven't talked to in 20 years. You know, that's how quick 20 years goes by. Um, that part of me, you know, that can be a sad situation sometimes. But I do find that, um, I don't know, it's amazing how receptive people are. You know, my 30th reunion is this summer. I reached out to a whole bunch of kids from college that I hadn't talked to in 30 years. It's amazing, you know, to, to reconnect with people. It, I think people are more willing to give you a second chance and you're willing to give yourself a second chance. So admitting that you made a mistake usually is enough to get you over that initial, you know, hill to climb. But yeah, I mean, I just, I approach things differently today. I don't beg forgiveness. I ask permission, right? Whether it's with my wife or with my, my family or with people that I'm doing business with or clients, I just don't, I don't want the, the surprise. I don't want the negative surprise. I'm not going to do that to them. So yeah, I ask, I ask permission. That's something I would have never done 20 years ago. I'd be like, eh, I'll deal with it. Right? <laughs> How many times have you done that? You know, you dig yourself a hole. What the hell was I thinking? Huh. That's great advice, man. And especially for, again, as young entrepreneurs, it's so easy to get fixated on like the prize that you're chasing, which, which can be like ever changing or ever, ever elusive. But that relational excellence you're talking about is like, you know, it's ultimately the people in our lives that are truly meaningful to us and making sure we don't overlook that in the pursuit of something else. Cause I think our true, true joy in life, as you mentioned from the start, you have this great, you've had this great relationship with your dad. You've had these great mentor relationships in your lives. And I think those are the things that we truly treasure, you know, and all these other things will slip through our hands and whatnot. And they're fun to have, but as long as we can, as you mentioned, like you're, you're working from home mostly so you can have more time with your kids and those relationships that go along with it. So I know for me, my biggest takeaway here is definitely like stay in your lane, keep, keep swinging for the fences and not try to get involved in everything out there, but also making sure that for me, I stay true to myself with what's most important to me in my life and making sure that it always maintains its level of importance, which for me is my wife and kids. So, so keeping true. that in place. So Jason, man, we appreciate you being on with us today. Uh, we're going to give you the last word here, like speaking to that young entrepreneur, the young Josh, the young Chad, the young Jason that's out there. What's maybe like one lesson, one thing that you could give for them in their entrepreneur adventure just to hold on to and carry with them? You know, the one thing I would say is trust your gut more than you probably do. You know, you know way more than than what you are, you know, maybe owning up to or will admit to. And I think that uh, if more people trusted their gut instinct, I think it would keep them out of trouble, so to speak. Right. You got to not to say that you shouldn't swing for the fences and, and maybe live life on the edge. I think all of that really just comes down to age. Right. So the younger you are, I think the more extreme you can kind of push the outside of the envelope you just have to recognize when you need to bring it back a little bit more to center right so that's my and I, and I can tell you there as a 
as a serial entrepreneur and, and business owner for 20 years, all of my bad decisions ended up being bad decisions. I had to talk myself into in the beginning. So that trust your Isn't that is, true? It's amazing. So right? true. The it's things so- I, I, I just immediately gravitated to and I loved have been successful. The things I talk myself into or use numbers to back myself into convincing yep. it was a good decision. Yep. Those where you go wrong every time. That's good. Yeah. So, yeah, you know what I do now when I'm presented with something like that? I just put it away and I'll pick it back up in a week. And if I still feel the same way a week later, and chances are I won't even remember. That's when I know that I made the right decision, right? Or <laughs> we've all had this. Somebody sends you a really nasty email, like totally off guard. It's usually Friday at 430 when somebody will just unleash something on you and try and ruin your weekend. They're not going to get the better of me. I will respond to them, you know, three or four days later when I've had time to relax, where I'm not going to say something I regret. And, <laughs> and I guess the only other piece of advice I give to people, and the, especially for the young ones, just be careful what you put in writing. Be careful what you put on social media. Be careful about how you present yourself with this permanent structure we have with the internet. Um, not to say that you shouldn't, you know, go do what you want to do, but just remember that you're not going to be the same version of yourself in 20 years. And you don't want to present yourself, you know, in that same light. And so I think more young people need to be very protective over their identity and and about what they're portraying themselves to be, even though that might not be what they really are. Does that make any sense? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just think they need to be a little bit more cautious. I'm very careful about what I put on the Internet just because I don't really want it coming back to bite me at some point in the future. Right. So I don't know. Um, now I'm now I got my dad hat on, so I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, make sure you call before uh, before ten o'clock, so we know where you are on Friday night too. That's it. Uh, I love it, man. Well, we really appreciate the time and uh, all the uh, advice and experience and things that uh, you're able to share through your journey. And what an amazing ride! And uh, man, such a fun adventure you've been on. And now to be where you're at, uh, scaling tremendously uh, over a two-year period in, in VREF and excited to watch it grow and uh, see what the future holds, man. And uh, Thank just you. Uh, appreciate your time for joining us and being able to share with our listener and uh, look forward to catching up with you in the future. Absolutely. Hopefully, uh, I'll get to see you guys again. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed uh, being with you guys for, uh, for the last hour or so. And yeah, you guys got a great show and I think it's really important, you know, the, the message you guys bring and um, entrepreneurs are a funny group. We need to stick with each other, right? We can lean so heavily on one another. It's just it, no one wants to ever ask, right? But I, I wish more people would just ask. And that's, what, that's why I think what you guys do is so great because it really does, it raises questions if some people just don't have the nerve to, to address. So thank you for doing that. Thanks, Thanks, guys. If you're a fan of the Entrepreneur Adventure Podcast, we would love to hear about it. You can leave us a review right here on your favorite podcast app. You can subscribe to the podcast or you can find us on Instagram at The Entrepreneur Adventure. Until next time, thank you for joining us.